Hello, I'm Arielle Crude. And I'm Christina De La Rocha. Welcome to Season 3 of Solarpunk Presence. The podcast introducing you to the people working today to create a future we'd like to live in. Because if Solarpunk as a genre of fiction dreams about the just and sustainable world we'd like to live in in the future, Solarpunk as a movement rolls up its sleeves and gets down to the business of bringing it about in the present. Welcome to episode 3.2. Before we continue, I'd like to break in to say, I hope you've been enjoying our podcasts. We put a lot of work into them to make them interesting for you, but we could use your support. Join our Patreon at www.patreon.com backslash solarpunkpresence for a few dollars a month for early access to episodes and bonus content. That would really, really help us out. Or recommend us to a friend. Or write us a review. All of that will help us grow our audience and keep creating great interviews and discussions for you to listen to. Thanks, and now for this week's episode. Hello listeners, it's Ariel here, and welcome to my discussion today with Dr. Chloe Taylor, Professor of Women and Gender Studies at the University of Alberta. Dr. Taylor was the instructor for a course that I audited back in 2018 called Feminist Anthropocenes, and she was on my committee for my PhD defense. She's been involved in a five-year-long project researching the intersections of animality, and I wanted to bring her on the podcast today to talk a little bit about her work and thinking about animal ethics and animal rights. So welcome, Dr. Taylor, and thank you for talking to me today. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to have this conversation. Could you introduce yourself a little bit more? Tell us a bit more about the work that you do and have done with critical animal studies, because we interacted sort of at a very sort of uh, grad committee uh, capacity. So tell us a bit about your research. My training is in philosophy. So I started out, I mean, I didn't work in animal ethics originally, but as I got interested in thinking about animals and the environment as well, it's, I started out doing sort of philosophical animal ethics and political theory, uh, thinking about extending political theory to beyond the human. Um, but now I more identify with doing critical animal studies. I've moved out of philosophy into women's and gender studies. So I don't so much identify as doing philosophical animal ethics anymore so much as critical animal studies. And a few years ago, I co-founded the North American Association for Critical Animal Studies, which is a kind of sister society to the European Society for Critical Animal Studies. So, And I'm particularly interested as a feminist scholar, I'm particularly interested in thinking about animal oppression intersectionally. So thinking about intersections of animal oppression, speciesism with racism, with ableism, with sexism, heterosexism, and so forth. Um, a lot of what solar punks and environmentally minded folk try to do is to be as good neighbors as we can to other beings that we share our land with. And so I'm glad to be able to talk to you about the nuances of that way of thinking and being today on the podcast. But to start, I wanted to ask you sort of a few 101 style questions. So you mentioned uh, philosophical animal ethics and critical animal studies. Uh, what is the nuance of the difference mm -hmm. between those two? Well, I guess I would say. Animal ethics 
it's been kind of dominate in the philosophical tradition has been kind of dominated by a few famous white men philosophers who work in the analytic tradition mm-hmm. and so there's a certain style of argumentation that's very logical that sort of eschews emotion uh you know it's like oh we're being we're not it's not that we like animals or that we care about animals or that we're being emotional or attached to animals it's that we are being rational and therefore if we're reasonable people we will treat like cases alike and you know if we and they make kind of arguments that if we think that we can kill animals we're justified in killing animals or exploiting animals or caging animals for our purposes because they're less intelligent than we are then why don't we do the same thing to cognitively disabled human beings and so they make a lot of these kinds of arguments from analogy and they're not really concerned when they make an argument like well we don't do this to cognitively disabled humans so we shouldn't do it to animals they're not actually concerned with cognitively disabled humans so that's the kind of distinction i think with critical animal studies and especially which i think is characterized by intersectionality and that's been important to my own work is to not just make these kinds of arguments from analogy analytic philosophers i'm thinking of people people like peter singer and tom regan coined the term speciesism to sound you know to it's supposed to sound like racism and sexism and they wanted to make the argument they did make the argument that just like sexism and racism are irrational prejudices against groups of people speciesism or you know irrational prejudice based on race or based on sex speciesism is irrational prejudice based on species Um, So there's a lot about reason, you know, that this is irrational, so we shouldn't do it. And our arguments are rational. And it's about treating like cases alike and that kind of thing. And feminist scholars have criticized this in a few ways. And when, like, why are they so concerned to sort of say, we're not being emotional, we're, we're being rational. And Mm -hmm. it has a lot to do with the association of men and of humans with reason. Like, so that's precisely why humans have always thought that they were superior to other animals is that we are rational and they are not. But men have also thought that men are rational, whereas women are more intuitive or are more emotional and so forth. And so I think uh, there's a kind of association of animal activism or caring about animals with like sentimental women and crazy women, you know, like the crazy cat lady stereotype and so on. And so I think these um, white male analytic philosophers are, they want to sort of argue for animal rights and improving animal welfare, but they want to do it while dissociating themselves from women, from mentally ill people, from being unreasonable, and so on. So I, and they also make these arguments that are like analogies, that speciesism is like racism, that it's like speciesism. But they don't see the way that racism and speciesism and sexism interlock with each other or that we need to think about these intersectionally. That is not just that they're comparable, but that they work together in certain ways. So we can think about, for instance, um, that like very often oppression of African-American people, of African people, people of African descent 
has been on the basis that they are more animal than white people, that they're more primitive, primitive or less civilized. There's an animalization of Black people, which has justified treating them like animals, right? And so that's a case where it's not just that racism is like speciesism, but that it kind of involves speciesism, that it is a kind of speciesism, that people of color are seen as less than fully human or less human, closer to animals. In the 19th century, you know, Darwinism was used this way to say that Black people were the missing link between white people and the great apes and, you know, that they were less evolved than white people. So there's like genuinely this been this belief that black people are more animal, closer to the animals than white people. And so and and that that justified white people dominating them. So there is um, a species of logic within racism. And other scholars have made similar kinds of arguments about intersections of disability or disability oppression and animal oppression. So for instance, Sonora Taylor has argued that our discrimination against animals actually is ableist and that ableism is speciesist. So our, and how she makes that argument is that when we discriminate against animals, we say they're inferior to us. We can dominate them. We can exploit them. We can kill them because they're inferior to us. And our evidence that they're inferior to us is that they can't speak or, you know, they can't walk on two legs and they don't make art or, you know, they, they, yeah. they don't use reason and, you know, so on. So just evidence that they're not as smart as us and so on. So it's based on their capacities or their abilities. Like they don't have the same abilities that are typical of humans. And so because they don't have our abilities, then, and sometimes it's things that also characterize cognitively disabled people, right? That the ability to use language and so forth. And so she she says that this is a kind of ableism to discriminate against animals because they don't have the abilities that we have. Of course, they have abilities that we don't have also, but we don't prize the abilities they have. And then disabled people often are discriminated against because like people of color, they're seen as more like animals. So Sonora Taylor, for instance, can't use her hands to hold a fork. And so she eats with her mouth directly out of a plate. And she's told that she eats like a dog or she's been told that she walks like a monkey. And she talks about in her work how many disabled people say that they have been discriminated against through these comparisons to animals. So it's not just that ableism is like speciesism, but that it actually is a form that speciesism takes. So I find that work just much more interesting. And so that's that's how I understand critical animal studies is doing that more intersectional work and mm-hmm. also being intersectional that way, you know, it's aware of the way that analytic philosophy and being so tied to reason is actually, it's not just that attachment to reason and saying, oh, we, we're not being emotional about animals. We don't care about animals. We're just being rational. That it's not only connected to sexism and a kind of sanism, like we don't want to be seen as like crazy women. It's also, um, you know, reason is how humans have philosophers in particular have always said we're superior to animals mm-hmm. and you know to to nature is that we have reason we and that's why we can have language and civilization and so forth and that makes us superior so it's kind of ironic to then you know be so attached to reason and making arguments for animal ethics because it's precisely this this attachment to reason that that, that or this high prizing of reason that's been used so often to justify our oppression of animals and our exploitation of nature. I 
had thought about like animal rights, you know, whenever I talk about it to other people, um, often what comes up in conversation is, you know, being able to recognize a being's agency or just, just this certain measure of intelligence before that we grant them, you know, certain rights. So like, for example, elephants will, you know, like ex- exhibit signs of like communal mourning and grief and there's mm-hmm. octopi and corvids and pigs and dolphins, all of whom have been proven to either solve logic puzzles or recognize themselves in mirrors or have long-term memory for relationships. And so justifying their legal personhood sort of becomes more of a, almost a -a whack-a-mole kind of um, exercise where we start to sort of go through a bunch of different loopholes. Yes. And that's also been a criticism that's been made of sort of philosophical approaches to animal ethics is that it never questions that species typical white rational male human is the center of ethical concern right and then other humans and also other animals we like expand the circle of ethical concern to include other people other animals insofar as they are close to that kind of ideal human who is this you know rational white male non-human animals that can demonstrate intelligence that is kind of our recognized kind of intelligence. So it's not echolocation, for instance, even though, or, you know, being able to fly south without a map and, you know, things that birds can do and, you know, whales and bats can do, they can do all kinds of things that we can't do, but we don't value those things. And so we judge their intelligence based on, can they do things that we can do? Like we put them in a maze and see if they can get out or we, you know, there's all kinds of torturous tests that are done to animals where they're like electroshocked if they do certain things and how quickly do they learn not to do those things. And so we judge them, you know, and language acquisition is a big thing. So if you can demonstrate that an animal has language and if you can demonstrate that they have sort of sophisticated emotions and memory, if they have the kinds of family structures that we have and emotional connections, all those things sort of tend to make us feel like those animals are like us and therefore we should be concerned about them. But that just assumes that we are the center of moral concern and other things get moral concern only insofar as they're similar to us. But why should that be? Right. Right. It's that, um, you know, that basic empathy for, you know, what you can see in the mirror and then how can you extend that? And sort of so critical animal studies is trying to sort of well, I would say maybe like bypass that, maybe. This is this is sort of the lowest bar. Yeah, and I think it's complicated because very often, I mean, I feel like we should do anything we can to get people to care more about animals and if sort of pointing out things like, you know, they care about their family members too. So like when you take the baby veal calf away from the mother so that we can drink the milk, that makes the mother suffer and it makes the baby suffer just mm-hmm. like, if you took a baby human from a mother human and, you know, when that happens, when they take the veal calves away from the mothers, they cry for days. And I think there are a lot of ways that animals are more like us than they're not like us. Many, some animals more than others. If we can use that to raise compassion for those animals, I'm all for it. So it's not that I'm against ever sort of saying animals are like us and that should, and if that helps to make people care about them, I'm all for that. And people will tend, when you say something like, oh, the poor mother cow is having their babies taken away, people will often accuse you of anthropomorphizing. Oh, they're not like humans. They don't care about their babies the way humans do. 
And I think actually the danger isn't anthropomorphizing, it's the opposite. Like we too often think animals are different from us. And in very many ways, they're this, you know, men, some animals much more than others, of course, like some animals just lay eggs and leave and they don't care about their babies the way um, <laughs> mammals tend to do. So Anyway, so it, it's complicated. I'm not against ever making comparisons with animals or pointing out the ways that they're like us, but I think we have to question this idea that we are the center. Uh, we are the kind of paradigm of the beings that, that are worthy of moral concern and that other creatures are only wor- worthy of concern so f- insofar as they're like us. And I mean, I think that extends to beyond animals to like why like we should be valuing forests and rivers and mountains and and that's something that indigenous scholars like Kim Talbert have argued is that we need to actually challenge even the animate inanimate distinction and and there's people doing critical plant studies who argue that you know it's even harder for us to like be, feel concern about plants but that we should that this is morally valuable. These are morally valuable beings as well. But of course, it gets harder and harder for us to have that empathy when they're more different from us. You mentioned that the philosophy of animal ethics kind of came into being during the 20th century. So I'm sort of wondering what the history of sort of critical animal studies and thinking about animals intersectionality or intersectionally rather is. The kind of book that's sometimes considered the bible of animal liberation or animal rights is peter singer's animal liberation and it was published in 1976 i believe it's either 75 or 76 but i think it's 1976 and tom regan's animal rights was published in 1980 so and they were not the first books or philosophical arguments for animal rights that you actually have arguments for for animal ethics and animal rights all the way back to antiquity and you have arguments in you know multiple cultures not just in the western tradition but that those are really the works peter singer's animal liberation and tom regan's animal rights in 1976 and 1980 that that got a lot of attention and that to this day are probably the most well-read works in animal ethics. And Peter Singer took a a kind of welfareist position. He actually doesn't argue for animal rights, but he does argue that we should be concerned to improve the welfare of animals and that we should be concerned with beings based on their sentience, whether they can suffer, whether they can experience happiness and pleasure. And so long as they can, that, that we have a moral obligation to be concerned for them, not based on their intelligence. And but he doesn't argue that they actually have rights. Tom Regan makes that argument that animals have rights. Yeah, so that's kind of late 20th century, the 70s and late 70s, early 80s. And then critical animal studies, it comes later, like in the 21st century, I would say. I think um, the language of you know critical comes later and just also the language of intersectionality comes later, right? So intersectionality comes again intersectionality had predecessors so before Kimberly Crenshaw started to use the language of intersectionality other black feminists have had talked about interlocking oppressions and logics of domination and so forth 
but that language that did come later in the 20th century in the early 21st century thinking about intersectionality in this explicit way and then critical animal studies is the term is taking up from other bodies of theory like critical race theory and critical disability studies and so taking up that language and and also drawing on those theories and so drawing on critical race theory and drawing on critical disability studies and drawing on critical approaches to gender or feminism. I wanted to ask you, actually, first, could you help me with the reviewing of terms? Because I've seen animals referred to with language that sort of seeks to undo that hierarchical notion of sort of human supremacy and, and human centrism. So terms like more than human others or non-human kin or more than other than human animals and sort of more than that. Do you have a preference and and why? So just like feminism challenged, like discussed the importance of language and how words like mankind and man, you know, that these were not just innocuous, but that when you use mankind to speak of the whole species, then you're saying that the male is the paradigm of humanity and that the female is, as Simone de Beauvoir says, the second sex. And so, mm-hmm. so that it's significant to change the language that we use. And I think all liberation movements have done that. And all critical theories have done that challenge the language that we use and critical disability studies too. There's been a lot of challenging of, of certain language and debates about should we say, uh, you know, that definitely we should not use the word crippled, but should we say disabled persons or should we say people with disabilities and, you know, debates about what is the best terminology and the pros and cons of different options. And so it's been the same in critical disability studies that there's a kind of agreement that just using the word animal to refer to non-human animals and is problematic. It is kind of similar to using man to refer to humans, or it's maybe kind of like the inverse of that. Um, so when you use the word animal to refer to every species of animal, you know, like millions of species of animals, except the human, even though the human is an animal, it's kind of a bizarre thing for two reasons. One, that it the way we use animal means not human animals, but of course we know humans are animals, but it sort of suggests that humans are not animals. And that's a problem because it sort of suggests a divide between us and them, which, you know, underrides our kind of justification of treating them differently or thinking they're outside our sphere of moral concern and that they're inferior to us. So there's that problem of sort of setting humans outside of the animal. But there's also this problem of just having one word to refer to millions of species of animals that are so different and, you know, like everything from chimpanzees that, you know, have 99.7 or something percent of the same DNA as we do to squids and octopi and hawks and, you know, ladybugs. And, you know, there's so much diversity among all these different kinds of animals. And some, like we are closer to chimpanzees and orangutans than we are to squids and bats and so on like we just have a lot more in common with certain animals than other but so it's a it's a problem that we like put all these animals into one category mm-hmm. and the only thing that matters as if the only thing that matters is they're not humans 
so so there's a kind of violence of erasing all the difference between animals as well as the problem of setting humans outside of the category of the animal so people started using the term non-human sorry there's a car revving up in the background here but people started using the word non-human animals but then that was criticized for as kind of like calling people of color non-white people and which sort of still takes the white as the kind of paradigm and then other people are non-white and so they're defined by their non-whiteness by not being in this privileged category of whiteness and so there's the argument that non-human animals still kind of privileges the human as like one category and everything else is defined by it's not being us or not being this privileged category but we still somehow want to sort of refer to that entire category of other (laughs) because we oppress all other species of animals based on the same logic that they're not human and so we do in a way need to refer to them as a group to speak of this kind of oppression that is speciesism or people have wanted to not use non-human. So they've tried other than human animals or more than human animals. <laughs> so I don't know how successful that is. It, like when I when I teach, I always have to explain, like students will be confused. Like, what do you mean non-human? An-? Even when I just use non-human animals, they're like confused. Like, why would I do that? And so I have to explain and more than human and other than human seems to confuse people even more. And I often find critical animal studies scholars will, use one of those terms once at the beginning of a text and then have a footnote saying, you know, for reasons of expedience from now on, I'll just use the word animal to refer to. (laughs) And they'll like acknowledge the problems with the term, but say they just don't want to like throughout their entire book, say more than human animals, more than human animals every time, because it feels clumsy or, you know, it's longer. And I mean, those are the same kinds of arguments that I remember hearing when people said oh we should use humankind instead of mankind or or even you know language around like using they them to speak of people who don't identify with he he or she and that oh this is ungrammatical or this is awkward or this is unfamiliar or this will be confusing to people and I find people actually get used to changes in language quite quickly and so we shouldn't worry too much about that if if it's politically important to change our vocabulary, I shouldn't, I think we should, but I find that people, critical animal studies scholars included, tend to actually just resort to using animal most of the time. It's hard to sort of take all of that and put it into like a very small sort of like word or concept, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, but as as you say, language changes fairly quickly and, and people adapt to it. And so mm-hmm. um, I see this kind of as the sort of growing pains in the way that we're coming to conceptualize, uh, well, other than human animals um, mm-hmm. and and sort of breaking down that binary of the human versus the animal. And that, you know, the human represents all humans and the animal represents all animals. And Mm -hmm. it's a little bit more nuanced and complicated than that. So Mm -hmm. yes. Yeah. So Dr. Taylor, in your opinion, why is critical animal studies so important for humans to think about now? Why is it important for us to sort of bring these conversations into our sort of daily lives and what we're doing and how we're interacting with ourselves, uh, with uh, other people, with other more than human animals? I think there's lots of reasons that 
we could make for the sake of animals and the natural world. But I also think increasingly we are aware that our exploitation of non-human animals and nature is killing us. So we're in a mass extinction event. It's the sixth mass extinction event in the history of the earth and all the other ones, you know, were caused by things like an asteroid hitting the earth or something. And this one is caused by human activities, not just anthropogenic climate change, although that is causing a lot of extinctions. But a, a major reason is that humans are just, you know, taking over wild animals habitats and so lots of animals are going extinct because they have nowhere to go that we've taken over their habitats also all our travel around the world and we've purposely and accidentally brought non-native species into other countries that have killed off native species so and and some animals we've just like hunted to extinction and for a number of reasons, all of them caused by humans, that we're in a mass extinction event. I think animals are going extinct and plants as well at a thousand times the usual rate of extinction. And we could have lost 50% of animal species by the end of this century. We might think, what does that matter to us? But it actually matters a lot to us. So for instance, I think I read that already 40% of insects have gone extinct. And we know, you know, the importance of bees for pollination. If we to our food systems, but, you know, insects make the, make soil and so forth. So our food system is going to collapse if the insects go extinct, the insects are the, and also all the animals in the ocean, actually the extinction rate in the oceans is the highest, I think. And this is the basis of the web of life. And when that collapses, everything quote unquote above it collapses as well. So we are, (laughs) basically committing suicide as a species and taking most of life on earth with us through Mm. the ways that we treat animals. One thing too, animal agriculture, right, is um, for a long time, animal ethicists, critical animal studies scholars have been critical of animal agriculture, this sort of mass breeding and raising and slaughter of animals for human consumption because of animal welfare concerns, animal rights concerns. But increasingly we've been aware that it's a major driver of climate change it's a major reasons why the amazon rainforests which are the lungs of the earth are being clear-cut is for pasture land for grazing animals or for growing crops to feed the animals we eat and so on so animal agriculture there's so many reasons it's like what is it i think 75% of antibiotic use is for animals in industrial agriculture because they are kept in such intensive confinement conditions that, you know, they're, it's just ripe for diseases and so on. And which brings us to zoonotic diseases, <laughs> you know, like mad cow, COVID-19, avian bird flu, swine flu, these are all zoonotic diseases, right? And so some of them we get from animal agriculture, but some of them we get from wild animal markets, some of them we get from, you know, humans going into wild animal territories and taking over their habitats. So so there's all kinds of concerns with disease as well. So I started by saying that 75% of antibiotic use is 
is goes to agricultural animals. And so we hear a lot about how antibiotics are no longer going to be effective and we're going to begin to die again by things like getting a cut or, you know, having a bladder infection. And these things that are so easy to treat now are not going to be, you know, people are going to die of these things if antibiotics stop working if we become resistant to them because of overuse but most of that use is in animal agriculture so yeah so there's like so many reasons why animal agriculture in particular but also our incursions into wild animal habitats pose threats to human existence so there's all kinds of ways that the ways that we have exploited nature and that we oppress animals is coming back at us and is posing existential threats to humans. So whether or not we actually care about animals, we need to care about what we're doing to animals for the sake of humans. With all that, that's uh, that's pretty grim to think about. Uh, necessary, for sure, to think about. Um, and so what uh, gives you hope? What is the sort of critical animal studies way of, of thinking through this and in a sort of more positive light? Or what are some concrete actions, maybe? Yeah, it's hard because like you can like the number of people who are vegan is going up and up and up. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, the human population is growing. And there's parts of the world that used to eat just small amounts of meat or very little meat. But um, industrial agriculture is moving to those countries and, you know, meat consumption is going up. And so even though the number of people who are eating plant-based diets goes up, the rate of meat consumption is also going up. That in a way is a, is a reason to, for hope when you sort of look at like, oh, wow, every year more and more people are identifying as vegan. That's good. And more and more people are aware of the harms of animal agriculture. That's good. But at the same time, it's, it seems to be totally offset by the population growth and rates of consumption of meat in the so-called developing world. Uh, so what, like the kind of Americanization of diets, food colonialism has led to this sort of huge increase in rates of meat consumption around the world. So that is and isn't a source of hope. I think sometimes it's really, it's helpful to sort of just focus on local cases. <laughs> like mm-hmm. when I think about the big picture, it can be really demoralizing, but then there's like lots of sort of stories like that at a more local level that are encouraging and inspire hope. It's something, yeah, I don't really know how I feel about this, but like when I read about there's been six major extinction events and so on, like this one is different because we're causing it, but mm-hmm. life does continue. <laughs> like oh, It's hard to be like, okay, we're going to take out most life on earth, but something will continue, maybe back to bacteria and viruses. <laughs> you know, I've talked to a lot of people and some people do actually take quite a bit of hope and comfort in that, you know, they're like, well, I, you know, like it might be on the sort of small scale that things are maybe not going so well, but if you take a sort of larger geological time planetary scale, mm-hmm. uh, I take comfort in the fact that, you know, everything is gonna be okay in a million years <laughs> yeah I mean sometimes I read these I read a book called um 
Isles of Abandonment. Mm-hmm. And it was about, it was the subtitle is something like nature rebounding in, I can't remember the full subtitle, but it was all about these places that humans have abandoned because of, in most cases, it's because like we've made them so toxic and mm-hmm. like there's been so much pollution or, you know, just you know, heavy metals in this river, like, I don't know, for whatever, or, you know, detonation of atomic bombs, or whatever reason, humans have abandoned certain areas. Mm -hmm. And then this author went to all these, like, small, you know, just areas that humans have left alone for a couple decades or something. And in one case, it was actually just like an island off Scotland that you know, fewer and fewer people lived there because it was isolated and they wanted to move to the city. And so, and finally there was just like one family living there and the parents died and that was just the siblings and, and then a bunch of them left or died. And then it was just two and one of them got sick. And so they left two mm-hmm. and they left their cows behind. They were dairy farmers. And so they left their cows behind. They just like opened the gates of the door of their barn and, and left and never went back. And no one else lived there. And so for decades, these cows just lived on their own um, Mm. on this island. And then people went back and were like, oh, my thinking, you know, oh, these cows that have been domesticated for hundreds of years, they're not going to have been able to survive. But they had totally survived and they'd completely changed in only a couple of decades. They had totally changed. They weren't these sort of docile animals anymore. They were like aggressive and would attack anyone who, and they were, there was just like, they were just, they'd gone back to like aurochs or something in a couple of decades. It was really kind of interesting, but they were thriving. And the same with like these, these really toxic sites where most, I mean, not to like celebrate these toxic sites that humans abandoned because they were so poisonous but it was still astonishing that most of the life you know the animal life and plant life there died but certain things survived and certain things were flourishing and you know certain things had evolved and certain things were able to sort of live um in these conditions and so it was just kind of astonishing um the some very interesting way that nature like, rebounded yeah like, and often people think so- place sorry <laughs> yeah no go ahead sorry. I, I was I was just thinking as you were talking about um the old uh site of Chernobyl and mm-hmm. you know, uh uh the bikini atolls and stuff like that and mm-hmm. the interesting sort of news reports and studies on on different animal life and flora and fauna that's been coming mm-hmm. up and so I was just thinking about that while you were talking sorry to interrupt <laughs> oh no yeah I do love reading those kinds of stories though and like I've read like about people often say like oh there's you know domesticated animals like chickens like they couldn't be set free they couldn't be rewilded and and it's just amazing you take these chickens that you know like hundreds and hundreds of generations because they they have such short lives, but so hundreds of generations of these chickens have just lived in battery cages, but you, you let them be free and they, they still have all their instincts to dust bathe and to take care of their eggs and so on. And so those stories really give me hope that, that Mm. we think that we've completely destroyed these animals and denatured them, but no, they will, they will rewild and they will survive. And and even if we do kill off ourselves and a lot of species, there's going to be a lot that survives and, you know, nature will rebound. And yeah, yeah. So that, that gives me hope, although it's in some ways it's a very dismal perspective because it's assuming a lot of extinction, including our own. 
Well, I mean, looking at sort of the world as it is with clear eyes is important. And then seeing also the things that uh, are reasons for hope and reasons for resilience, I think, are really important. And also, I mean, taking a look at the way that animals are able to adapt to their circumstances. And it really belies that human supremacist urge of saying, you know, oh, no, we have ruined everything. We are the masters of of the universe dominion and over you know like all the animals kind of thing oh they must be so helpless without us but they're not Mm -hmm. Um, exactly yeah well thank you so much for coming on the podcast to talk with me today about this subject this is really interesting this is an area of study that was really adjacent to sort of what I was doing in graduate school and I'm glad to have had a chance to sit down and speak with you about it in the context of sort of uh, attaining a more just, equitable future. Um, I'm convinced that every solar punk should take some time to really sit and think about their relationship with the species around them. Um, and I hope our conversation has been a good starting point or supplement to those strains of thought. So thank you so much. Thank you. And that's a wrap for this episode. Don't forget that we need your support, so visit our Patreon page at www.patreon.com backslash solarpunk presence. Thank you for listening to Solarpunk Presence, a podcast hosted and produced by Ariel Kroon and Christina Della Rocha. The audio for this episode was recorded in part on the traditional territory of the neutral Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe peoples. And in Germany, the opening and closing music for this podcast is Water Cooler Gang by Monkey Warhol. Available for use under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, join our Patreon at www.patreon.com backslash solarpunkpresence. Or share the podcast with friends, family, and people you know who might be interested in our guests and what we have to say. We'd also love it if you could write us a nice review on your podcatcher of choice because every review bumps us higher in the algorithm's priority, so we can reach more listeners. Until the next episode, keep dreaming and keep up the good work.